welcome back and thanks for tuning in to Oil & Gas Onshore, where I am on a relentless pursuit to bring value, unity, and information to the energy industry one conversation at a time. So sit back, relax, and remember that even this very device you're listening on requires some form of hydrocarbon. This episode is brought to you by Technip FMC, a company who truly represents the future of energy. Hey everyone, look, not only do you get awesome weekly content by listening, now you've got a chance to win some serious swag brought to you by Technip FMC. Each week, one lucky listener will win a bundle of gear, which includes everything I'm about to list. Seriously, everything. An audio duffel bag, a Yeti tumbler, an executive power bank power charger, a Columbia neck gator, and a set of Ace Pods 2.0, which are the true wireless Bluetooth earbuds. All you got to do is click the link in the show notes and enter your information to win. Simple. Now go get your swag on. All right, we'll go ahead and kick this thing off. Welcome to this week's episode. I'm here in Zoom land with Phil Johnson, executive leadership and founder of Masters of Business Leadership. Welcome to the show, Phil. Where are you visiting us today? Thanks, Justin. It's great to be on your show. I live in Mississauga, Ontario, Canada, which is right next to Toronto. Perfect. Actually, I've never been out east, but I have a good friend lives just outside of Toronto who works for one of the nuclear plants out there. I think it's the Brian or starts with a B. It's yeah, one of the bigger nuclear plants. Anyway, I grew up and went to college with him, but he's always invited me over there and sends me pictures of his place and his beautiful area. I mean, growing up in British Columbia, which I'm sure you're familiar with, you know, the climate there is beautiful, the terrain, everything else. But apparently the East Coast has some nice stuff as well. But I've yet to go there. Hopefully one of these days. Are you from there originally or where are you from? Yeah, I grew up about an hour from here in a very small rural town called Brantford, Ontario, home of the telephone. Okay. So elaborate. What do you mean by that? Brantford is where Alexander Graham Bell first invented the telephone. And I believe his first conversation between, I think, Brantford and Boston, although I could have that wrong. Okay. Interesting. So is that hence the term Bell? Yeah. Or like the company? Because again, when I was back in Canada, instead of it being AT&T and Verizon, as it is down here, it was all Bell and then TELUS, I think was the other big one, right? Bell is short for Alexander Graham Bell. Okay. I learned something new today. (laughs) Nice. There you go. Good deal. Before we keep going, I do have to highlight some really cool technology provided by our sponsor, Technip FMC. Technip FMC has recently deployed an app designed for their onshore customers. This app can be used on all mobile devices and it is designed to quickly and easily find product documentation support resources, download the latest operation and maintenance manuals, easily access warning and safety instructions through the app on your phone. And if you're just simply not sure exactly who to speak to or who to contact within Technip FMC, the app's catalog, location, and contact us sections can help you find that information. Download their Surface app today by scanning the QR code in their video or by visiting the link in the show notes. Also, we're doing our monthly happy hours here in Houston. Check out OGGN.com for more details on all our events. And we've got several podcasts that are coming down the pipeline and that we've released over the last year. So please check out the website. Certainly, there's a podcast for you, whether it's safety, leadership, technology, energy transition. We've got one for everybody. So please check that out. And if you have any questions and simply even ideas for a show, the OGGN team is always open to chat. Hit us up on LinkedIn and would be happy to engage and bounce ideas around. That's what it's all about. So Phil, I want to start off by asking you, and this is not particular to your business, maybe it is, 
and what you do, but what core belief have you changed your mind on over the last couple of years? This can be personal, business, or really anything that comes to mind. That's a great question, Justin. Thanks for asking it. The core belief that's changed permanently involves our current level of consciousness. We're only conscious about three to 5% of the time. The rest of the time, we're relying on our unconscious habits to create our behaviors and our results. We need to raise that level of consciousness. We need to take the challenges we face and turn them into opportunities for higher consciousness. Interesting. And so why do you suppose that it is we do lack? And like you said, the percentage is awfully low. Why is that, do you think? Yeah, if we had to rely on our conscious mind, well, first of all, the first part of our brain to be developed when we're born is our unconscious mind. Our conscious mind doesn't start in until we're about a year or so old. But if we had to rely on our conscious mind to survive, we would be dead instantly. Our unconscious mind is stronger, faster, and takes less of our metabolic energy than our conscious mind. So think of our unconscious mind as an elephant, and our conscious mind is the flea on the elephant's back. So the conscious mind plays an important function, but ultimately our mind translates what we're doing consciously into unconscious habits, provided we do it often enough. Mm, Okay. So the conscious mind has an important function, but what's really driving us is our unconscious mind. Right. So would something like breathing be part of our unconscious mind? Because we don't really have to think about it. It just automatically happens. Obviously, when we're sleeping as well, that's part of it. (laughs) Would that be sort of a, a simple example? Sure. Here's another one. When you first learn how to tie your shoes, or when you're teaching your kids how to tie their shoes, initially, it's a horror show because it's a conscious thing they're trying to navigate their way through. Mm-hmm. Now we tie our shoes, we don't even think about it, so that it's traveled from a conscious activity to an unconscious activity. Mm. Same thing with driving a car. I was just going to say, yeah. These are kind of examples. It's called automaticity. Any action we practice often enough will convert into an unconscious habit. Fascinating. We'll move out of our conscious mind into our unconscious mind. And that's also why willpower doesn't work in changing behavior because it burns up very quickly like sugar. It's a conscious activity. What we really need to do to ensure better results is we need to develop better habits. How would you suggest or, or what do you speak on regarding developing better habits? First thing you need to do is you need to develop any strong emotional connection to some desired result you want to achieve because that emotional connection creates the motivation to move outside of your comfort zone. And that's how you develop new habits. You have to move outside of your comfort zone. It's actually called brain plasticity or neurogenesis. We can develop new habits at any age, but it requires us to change our actions by moving out of our comfort zone. To answer your question, you have to develop a strong emotional connection to a desired result you want to achieve. Interesting. I would imagine that a lot of people, especially you know, now that we're in January, have created New Year's resolutions and they're trying to increase the willpower, which it sounds like unless you created habits and you tie an emotional connection to a desired result or goal, and it's strong enough, 
a lot of times, you know, we see that fizzle away. Hence, dry January never ends up being dry January. It ends up being about dry two days into January or going to the gym. Developing habits is certainly interesting. I've read a book and it's been a long time, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, I believe it is. And that, yeah. And again, I couldn't recite or really define what the book was about, but I know sort of it helped pivot my mindset into creating better habits. And a lot of times the habits are not ones that come easily. They're uncomfortable to develop, but once you develop them, then they become almost unconscious habits. They just become automatic. That's a great comment. That's a great comment. And it's very appropriate for our discussion because, and you're exactly right. There's significant both biological and sociological resistance to change that I won't bore your listeners with unless I want to know about it. But Whenever we move outside of our comfort zone, that always creates anxiety in us. We have to move through that anxiety towards what it is we're trying to achieve. That's why you need a strong emotional connection that's actually greater than your fear of moving outside of your comfort zone. Because Mm. without that strong emotional connection, you may want better results, but you're not going to be willing to do the emotional labor that getting better results that developing those habits will require. Right, 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 right. No, again, it's such an interesting conversation and I want to dive a little bit further into it. And I always ask some personal questions before we get going, but it was just so, again, stuff that I'm quite interested in, but I want to sort of pivot a little bit and we'll get back to talking about this, but I am curious, Phil, just to get, you know, for to allow the listeners to get a little, to know more about you and including myself, but what does your ideal Friday night look like? If you had, let's just say all the money in the world, access to any resource you could, whether that's transportation, whether that's whatever it is. What would you spend that Friday night doing and who would you do it with? I'd spend Friday night doing what I do every other day of the week. And it's talking with people like you and your listeners. Wow. There's no way that I'd rather spend my time other than kissing my wife than working with people to help to develop their leadership and emotional intelligence. Right. This is my passion. So tell me a little bit about your passion. Where does that come from? Is this something, you know, as a child growing up, you were always interested in? I mean, where did this sort of originate from? Yeah, I actually got on this path about 54 years ago after the death of my mother in 1967. But I was born with dyslexia and failed grade three, failed grade five. And it caused me to do a lot of what I now refer to as emotional labor If I hadn't had the good fortune of being born with dyslexia, there's no way I would be doing what I'm doing today. It's kind of like an analogy is like a blind person that develops great hearing. Because my brain doesn't work the way most people's brains work, it forced me to compensate by doing the emotional labor of moving out of my comfort zone and through the fear, the anxiety that created on a regular basis. And that's how you develop emotional intelligence. That's how you develop greater insights into yourself and other people. But it's an extremely challenging process. It's kind of like Navy SEAL training for your emotions. It's something you would never do if you didn't have to do it, like right. going to the dentist. You'd never go to the dentist unless you're either in pain or trying to avoid pain. <laughs> so that's how I got on this path. Interesting. And so with that, So do you speak with a lot of people on a regular basis about, 
again, a lot of what we're discussing or because you have a coaching program, right? Which is masters of business leadership. So is a lot of that tied into what we're talking about or are there other areas that you also enjoy focusing on? No, everything we're talking about is tied into that master of business leadership executive coaching program that I developed. So that's what I've been doing. I've been working with executives and organizations around the world for the last 21 years to help them to develop better results through this process. Gotcha. Gotcha. So I'm curious if we just think of it on sort of a macro level, why are emotions so important in the first place when it comes to leadership? Emotions drive action. Intellect does not drive action. Emotion drives action. Mm. And emotions can keep us stuck in our comfort zone, fear, if we don't develop the emotional intelligence of being able to feel that anxiety and move through it towards a desired result we want to achieve. Without the emotional intelligence, our comfort zone becomes our prison. Let me just delve a little bit deeper on this. There's a part of our brain called the amygdala that's been around for about 500 million years. And it's part of our old lizard brain. And its primary job is to keep us safe and alive. And it does that by secreting a hormone called cortisol into our bloodstream whenever we take an action that moves us outside of our comfort zone. That causes our prefrontal cortex, the executive center of our brain, to shut off. And we typically go into some type of fight, flight, or freeze mode. Some people lash out, some people run away, some people freeze like a deer in the headlights. And when that happens in conflict situations, people die. And when it happens in business or personal situations, relationships die. We burn trust. So as an analogy, if you think of your amygdala as a very frightened four-year-old child, the development of our emotional intelligence acts like a big brother or a big sister that quiets the amygdala response down and better enables us to feel the anxiety that change and innovation creates in us and moves through it towards our division of our desired results, as opposed to allowing that anxiety to control us. And why that's really important now, why the development of emotional intelligence is so important now, is we're facing a tsunami of change that we are completely unprepared for. Some scientists estimate in this century, we could experience the equivalent of 20,000 years worth of change or 200 centuries worth of change. And we have a 500 million year old brain that doesn't like change. So we're all being ripped out of our comfort zones and we don't like it. And that's creating greater and greater levels of drama, chaos and conflict. So the development of our emotional intelligence isn't a solution to the tsunami of change we face. It is the only solution. That's why you see more and more companies like Apple, Google, Southwest Airlines, JetBlue, and others hiring, promoting, and developing emotional intelligence. Mm. It's going to become a central focus in everybody's life. It's a critical part of our education. It's a critical part of our development that's missing. Our educational system failed us, and our employment system failed us because they focused on our ability to do intellectual labor. And they did little or nothing to develop our emotional intelligence. And we need that, especially more 
than ever today. Interesting. I recently finished a graduate program where I got, you know, part of it involved a leadership course, which talked a lot about emotional intelligence in all aspects of leadership, but the emotional intelligence part sort of struck a chord with me. And so I got to, you know, do quite a bit of research and read quite a bit of papers on it. And it seems like, although it appears through research and again, through the research I've done, which is not fully extensive, but enough to kind of get an idea of what's going on, but it seems like leaders with a high IQ would tend to do better than with a low IQ, but ones with a high IQ and EQ, those who have a high level of both, this could be considered a key element in sort of a good leader to a great leader. But I think to help before we move forward, can you help describe the difference between cognitive intelligence, which would be IQ, and then emotional intelligence, which we've talked about? But can you sort of like very easily describe like and how they're very different, if you will? Yep. IQ is the ability to do intellectual labor is genetic. Okay. The ability to develop emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence is developed. It's an experiential process, meaning you can't develop emotional intelligence by reading a book or having a conversation or watching a video. It's about what you do, not what you think. Actually, what you do will change what you think. It will change the stories you're telling yourself. So IQ and EQ were meant to work together. See, whereas not everybody can have 160 IQ. Right. But anybody can develop their emotional intelligence. And emotional intelligence is 400% greater. It has a 400% greater probability of creating success than intellectual intelligence. On top of that, people with high IQs tend to have low EQs. And the reason for that It's when people get scared, they run to their strength. Mm. And if they happen to have been had the good fortune of having parents with high IQs that they inherited, when they get scared, their go-to for creating results is their ability to do intellectual labor. So they run towards what's easiest and they run away from what's hardest. Right. So you often see people that are hired for their IQ and experience and later fired or passed over for promotion for a lack of emotional intelligence. Arguably, IQ, I mean, you can quantify IQ through testing. Is there a way to quantify EQ? Results. Results and inspired followers. People that see your behavior and your results and are inspired to follow your example. I've helped organizations generate over a billion and a half dollars in this process and people advanced in their careers. But the bottom line is, if you need a title to get people to follow you, you're not a leader. If you need a position to get people to follow you, you're not a leader. If your actions don't inspire people, to want to follow you, you're not a leader. Leadership isn't a title, it's a choice. It's a choice that we all need to make, regardless of where we are or what we do for a living or how old we are. Right, that's fascinating because a lot of times you can see within organizations that people lean on either the leadership team or certain leaders within the organization. That's because a lot of it has been their IQ and experience has gotten them into that position. 
Right. But that's not what creates inspired followers. It's emotional intelligence. So they're kind of stuck. All they've got is like the old saying, when all you've got is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. If you lack emotional intelligence, your only way to try and get people to follow you is use some type of position-based power to control and manipulate others. And quite frankly, that's what we've been doing for a very, very long time. That's why the level of employee engagement, according to Gallup, is around 13%. The lack of emotional intelligence, the lack of inspired, inspirational leaders is costing the U.S. economy alone over a trillion dollars a year. And if your employees aren't engaged in what they're doing, neither are your customers. There's almost a one-to-one correlation between the level of employee engagement and the level of customer engagement. That's why there are so many toxic environments. It's a lack of emotional intelligence. Right. And something too that I've observed is a lot of times and in the oil and gas space, you know, primarily is most people have sort of a commitment to a company based off financial obligations. It's like the cost of leaving outweighs the cost of staying. And I know that we're slowly as an industry trying to increase the effective commitment, the emotional commitment to companies. And that's really how you grow. And that comes back to organizational culture, you know, the C word, which I think is a very broad term and it's a buzzword, good culture, this, that, and the other, but it can get pretty, I guess, technical (laughs) if you get really into it. There's obviously different types of culture and different types of organizational culture. But I guess in saying that, historically, toxic and fearful type leaders would lead employees' efforts of basically emotional survival, whereas sort of caring and more collaborative type leaders, you would see employee effort that really goes into the work. How can companies, if they recognize that people are there based off survival instead of thriving, what can they do, you know, aside from hiring you, of course, right? But are there things that people can consider or really start looking into to sort of help change the mindsets? Because ultimately, you're going to need some good change agents within organizations to implement and reinforce the efforts put into changing that mindset. Yeah, they need help. They need to hire somebody that can take them through the process of developing their emotional intelligence. And there's really no choice because we're too good at lying to ourselves. We're too good at telling ourselves, rationalize our behavior that keeps us stuck in our comfort zone. And with the accelerating rate of global change, the people that, it's interesting, I just wrote an article on this yesterday. A lot of the people that I coach that are going through the MBL program pay for it out of their own pocket. Well, I'd say it's about 50-50, but corporations are slow to invest in the development of their people. They're slow to invest in the development of their culture, the emotional intelligence of their organizations. So it's like they're penny wise and pound foolish. Give you a quick example. Let's say you've got a company that's got 10,000 employees and the loaded labor rate for employees $100,000 a year when you take into account compensation and benefits and stuff like that. If that company's level of employee engagement is 13%, they're wasting $870 million a year. So they're spending a billion dollars a year on compensation for $130 million worth of effort, worth of engagement. And I can tell you for a fact, 
that's happening every year, everywhere. So they have no problem burning up $870 million a year, but they won't spend a couple of million bucks to change the culture within their organization. It's crazy. See, but they don't know what they don't know. They're unconsciously incompetent. Yeah. It's hard to put that into a spreadsheet or give it to your accountant to say, here's the... Well, the other thing is, too, <laughs> that a lot of the folks at the C-level, the life expectancy of a C-level executive has become less and less and less and less. And they've become tied to keeping stakeholders happy. Yeah. So that their planning horizon is the next quarter, this quarter, the next quarter. And it stops you from making the strategic investments that will help the organization grow and thrive. The development of emotional intelligence isn't magic. There's no silver bullet. There's no magic pill. It takes an an ongoing investment over time as the results get better and better and better. Let me give you an analogy I like to use. Penny doubling. If you take a penny, which would you rather have? A penny that doubles every day for 30 days, $10,000 a day for 30 days. One gives you $300,000. The other gives you $5.7 million. I'm going with the penny doubling. There you go. See, the thing is, going from day 30 to day 31 takes as much effort as going from day one to day two. So in the beginning, it looks like you're doing a lot of work for a little, and you are because you don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. Later on, it looks like you're doing a little work for a lot, but it's because of the growing process of doing emotional labor over time. Wow. So the ROI for the development of emotional intelligence continues to increase exponentially over time. In this example, day 40 is over 5 billion, day 50 is over 5 trillion. So the point is, most organizations don't get out of the starting gate because it looks like they've got to make a big investment up front for very little visible return. And they're right. But as they continue to invest, the ROI starts to go through the roof. But it's a continual growing process. We're not machines. We're biology. And biology takes time to change. Right. And if your main focus is on keeping the stakeholders happy in the next 90 days, you don't have a chance. <laughs> you don't have a chance of turning around the culture within your organization. That takes years. Right. So for the people listening that perhaps are thinking, well, how can I increase my emotional intelligence? What are some very low hanging fruit, either steps or sort of habits or just anything that some key takeaways, some nuggets that people can walk away from listening with? Stop caring what other people think about you. What other people think about you has nothing to do with you. It has to do with them. It has to do with what's going on inside of them. If how you feel about yourself is based on how somebody else feels about you, who's running your life? You or them? Them. Them, right? You're jumping through hoops to keep them happy. So if they like you, you like you. If they don't like you, you don't like you. Stop giving away your energy. Stop giving away your agency. Stop giving away control of your life to other people. How somebody feels about you has nothing to do with you. 
It has to do with what's going on inside of them. Mm. If they like you, that's great. If they don't, that's unfortunate. But either way, it shouldn't determine how you feel about you. How you feel about you is up to you. Well, and especially in today's age, the fear of judgment of others lies heavy in many people. Look at social media. People are falling over backwards to fit in and get people to like them. Yeah. They're giving away their energy by the gallon to other people to determine how they should feel about themselves. It's never going to get you the peace of mind. It's never going to get you the results Mm. that you want. Right. As long as you continue to give away your energy to others, you're not in control of your life. That's really powerful. So step one, stop caring about what people think because chances are they don't care about you anyways. How they view the world is based on what's going on inside of them. Right. They're not focused on looking at you. They're looking at their own self-preservation. So their eyes are open, but they're not really aware. They're not really conscious of you. We're like Neanderthals bumping into each other. We're not nearly as evolved as we think we are. Sure. That's one I think, again, people can walk away with. Is there another one that you can think of for folks to walk away with? Sure. Stop taking responsibility for other people. You're responsible to others, but not for others. You're responsible for your behavior. You're responsible for your actions, but you are not responsible for the actions of anybody else. To be responsible for the actions of anybody else denies them the opportunity to do their own emotional labor. You want me to read you a quick story that kind of highlights that? Yeah, that'd be great. It's called the butterfly story. One day, a small opening appeared in a cocoon. A man sat watching the young butterfly for several hours as it struggled to force its body through the little hole. It appeared as if it had gotten as far as it could. It could go no further. So the man decided to help it. He took a pair of scissors and opened the cocoon. The butterfly was then able to emerge with little effort, but it had a withered body and shriveled wings. The man expected the wings to open and expand, allowing the butterfly to fly away. But the butterfly spent the rest of his life crawling around with a withered body and shriveled wings, never able to fly. What the man in his kindness did not understand was that the restricting effort of the cocoon and the struggle required for the butterfly to emerge through the tiny opening were nature's way of forcing fluid from the body of the butterfly into its wings so that it would be ready for flight once it achieved its freedom. Sometimes struggles are exactly what we need in our life. If we were allowed to go through life without any obstacles, it would cripple us. Our struggles and the emotional labor they require are essential for the development of our emotional intelligence, leadership, and awakened consciousness. So there's a story for you. Hmm. So how would you summarize that in, like, what would be your sort of takeaway from that? We all need to do our own emotional labor. In order for us to get better results, we have to develop better habits, which requires us to move outside of our comfort zone and through the discomfort through the anxiety, through the fear that triggers in us. And nobody can take that journey for us. We all need to do our own emotional labor. We all need to struggle through our challenges 
and hopefully turn them into opportunities for growth and better results. Mm. Whenever we give somebody else the ability, whenever we allow somebody to take responsibility for our actions, we're giving away the opportunity to do the emotional labor that the development of our emotional intelligence requires. And we become an emotional cripple. Hmm. Okay. Wow. That's again, I think I'd have to almost reread that to grasp it all. But again, thank you for sharing that. I do want to give you an opportunity, Phil, to share your MBL program. If you want to just kind of quickly go through what it is you offer and maybe how folks can reach out to you and access some of the information and even articles that you're speaking about. Yep. Best way to reach me is through my LinkedIn profile. It's really the only social media I'm on. Okay. And there's a link there to my calendar so they can jump on for a quick chat conversation. The Master of Business Leadership Program, initially it's a four-month, 16-week process. And although there are individuals and organizations that I've been working with for over 12 years, because the ROI keeps getting greater. It's the penny doubling. The ROI keeps getting greater and greater and greater. And I've worked with executives and organizations all over the world. Hmm. So anybody that would like to get better results than they're currently getting, I would be happy to have a conversation with them. Awesome. What we'll have to do is, you know, if you could send me any link or your links to your program or anything that you'd like to share, and I'll make sure and put it in the show notes. One last question I have on the business front, and then I'll close out with a couple of personal questions. What does the future look like for you? It sounds like you're living your best life, doing exactly what you want to be doing, but what's the ultimate vision for what you're doing? I want to try and reach as many people in the world as I can. I'm 68, just turned 68. I'm going to do this until I go in the ground, but hopefully I'll be able to do it well for about another 10 years. The emotional intelligence industry is going to become a multi multi-trillion dollar industry long after I'm dead. We're just actually getting started. I would highly encourage, highly encourage everybody to invest in the development of their emotional intelligence. Quite frankly, we're at a tipping point as a species. We truly have a tsunami of change coming at us. And without the development of our emotional intelligence, we don't have a chance. Hmm. We need to change our trajectory dramatically. We are leaving a dead cat on the doorstep of future generations. And this is the solution. It's not easy. It takes time. But it's the best thing you can do for yourself and anybody you care about. The ROI is incredible. Hmm. Did that answer your question? Yeah. It sounds like, you know, just to continue to help others and really spread what you're passionate about you know, for the better being of society and and business and obviously personal lives, this is extremely important as well. So no, I can appreciate that. Well, a couple of questions to close out then. Do you have any specific daily habits or routines that contribute to your success or to keep you dialed in on a day-to-day basis? Yeah. I get up at about 3.30 in the morning. I have for the last 15 or 20 years. I go to bed at eight o'clock at night. I get up, go for a walk, exercise, lift weights, stretch, lots of things to take care of my physical body. I write, I've written lots and lots. Yeah. And I eat well. I try not to do anything that's going to damage my body beyond the normal amount of damage it receives. 
Right. I really love what I do, and I want to prepare to do it for as long as I can do it. It's incredibly important, and I have to take care of this vehicle that I drive around in in order to be able to do that. Yeah. Everything I do is really, I try to incorporate as many good living habits as I can. It's kind of like an athlete that is taking care of his body in order to do whatever he or she does. I'm doing that in order to do this, in order to meet with youngsters like you. Mm. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. So you mentioned having dyslexia, which you've overcome. You can't overcome it. You don't overcome dyslexia. Well, you've managed to navigate life with I having I deal with it, it every day. <laughs> okay. It takes me 10 times as long to read a book as it does my wife. It's just life. Yeah. Well, so you've managed to live with it, if maybe better way of putting it. But what's something else about you that not many people know about? Do you have any you know, interesting hobbies or sort of any hit? I've played, uh, I love basketball. I played basketball for 50 years. I just love everything about basketball. Okay. Basketball, just even holding a ball in my hand. Yeah. Is a very centering process. I love the smell of it. I love played in university. Okay. I've kind of slowed down a little bit. I tore a muscle in my shooting arm. Oh, so no. I'm kind of rehabbing that. I just love it. No, that's really interesting. I can identify. I grew up playing sports and then towards, you know, the later part of my high school, you know, years, it was football and basketball and because the seasons got long and practice everything else. So I have a, a huge love for basketball, you know, traveling throughout BC and Alberta playing again, you know, even now my son's three. And we've got a little basketball hoop in the front and he's got the form down. You know, he can really put the hand in the cookie jar. You know what I mean? That's always, I remember that one from, you know, the fundamentals, but same here. I could literally sit there and just throw the ball in the air and watch the ball spin for probably hours on end. But yeah, that's interesting. I can appreciate that. So I love it. Good. Good. Interesting. When I was in university, I remember one time I had a summer, like, you know, final exams and something. Yeah. And the exam was like one o'clock in the afternoon and it was like 1230 and I was standing outside shooting a ball through hoop and somebody came by that I knew and said, you know, what the hell are you doing? You know, you've got an exam in, you know, 30 minutes. Why aren't you cramming or doing something else? And for me, this was the way I de-stressed. This is the way I relaxed and became more present. Yeah. And that's what it's all about is that's another challenge is, you know, being more present, which again, that could be a whole nother topic. Maybe we'll have to revisit, you know, at a later date, do a round two and talk about being present because that's another challenge. I think you're right. It's part of the MBL program. It's central. That's a longer discussion for another time, but it's another fundamental habit we need to develop. Mm. Yes, it is. Well, again, I'm looking forward to you know, having another conversation and recording another episode with you, Phil. This has been an absolute pleasure. And, and hopefully for the listeners, I mean, we didn't talk oil and gas, but you know, regardless, our business revolves around strong leaders. We depend on them just like any other industry. And you know, for those out there that work, I mean, you can be a leader, whether you're the bottom of the totem pole, middle or the top. And so hopefully there's some good takeaway here. And if you want to have a conversation, obviously Phil's more than open to chatting. Again, I appreciate your time. And with everyone out there, please 
leave a review, subscribe, share this episode. And with that said, always remember when the density is up and the gas is down, open the choke. Let's go to town. Thanks, everybody. And thanks, Phil. (laughs) My pleasure, Justin. Thank you. Thanks again for listening. Tune in next week for another episode of Oil & Gas Onshore, a production of Oil & Gas Global Network. For more information, visit OGGN.com.